Hello and welcome to the weekly eye-catching podcast where I look back over my journal for the last week and try and expand on a few themes from my personal life, observations about Surrey life, reflections on UK and international politics and matters that matter to me such as climate change and inequality. But don't worry, it's not too heavy and it's all done in the best possible taste as a certain British comedian used to say. If you want to read more or less but more importantly, see the daily image that accompanies the journal, go to www.blipphoto.com forward slash eye-catching. After reviewing my first ever podcast last week, my wife told me that although she enjoyed it, I did sound a bit too much like the kind of dangerous old man that people shuffle away from when caught with them in a confined space on public transport. So this week I'm going to endeavour to be a little more entertaining and a little less disturbing. In addition to my usual look back over the week, I also have a treat for you in the form of a series of short stories, which were originally written in 2011 and which are based around the song The Twelve Days of Christmas. I'm publishing the first four this week, the second four next week, and the remainder just after Christmas itself. They're very short and come in at around five minutes each. So that's about 20 minutes a week. So here is my worldview for the week commencing 12th of December 2022. Another week when the temperatures were down around the freezing mark most of the time, falling to minus seven at one point and topping out at three degrees on a good day. According to our daughter in British Columbia, this was colder than the ski resort Whistler up near the Rocky Mountains in Canada where she lives. This caused another, this time complete, heating dysfunction. But we were rescued again by our local heating and plumbing company, who found a frozen water supply pipe on the outside wall. Disaster narrowly averted. My wife struck up a good relationship with the engineer. She is brilliant with people, unless she doesn't like them, in which case they'd better buy some body armour. And when they spoke later in the evening to check that all was well, The quality of his Chinese takeaway was what dominated the conversation rather than our heating system. He came across as a slightly lonely middle-aged man who lived on his own, but at least he got to meet a few people today as I came back from the pub with seven colleagues in tow after our annual Christmas meal. Except this was of course the first one we'd had for three years thanks to Covid. Having a living room full of people did at least mean some shared body heat And the combination of mince pies, chocolates and coffee meant that no one actually minded the temperature. We offered the engineer a mince pie on his way out, but he declined as he didn't want to spoil his Chinese. Bad move as it turned out to be a substandard and expensive meal. I have to say something about my pub meal. It was, get ready for this, vegan haggis en croute. And it was absolutely delicious. So a big thumbs up to the Red Lion in Horsel for producing something so imaginative this year. In fact, it was so good, we cooked a variation on it ourselves when we had people over for dinner the following day. One of the topics of conversation around the dinner table at our Christmas lunch was this year's must-have Christmas gift, which is the air fryer, which was also covered in an article in The Guardian. Bottom line is, they are quick, cheap to run, reliable, and produce amazing results. On the basis of those criteria, I think we should have one as Prime Minister. It couldn't do a worse job than the last four we've had. On which subject, 
I was appalled to read that ministers leaving office get a handout of one quarter of their salary, irrespective of how long they've been in post. Case in point, David Frost, who jacked in his role as Brexit minister after nine months because it was too hard and made his head hurt. He got given 26k for doing bugger all and he wasn't even made redundant, just went home to nanny in a fit of pique. Given the turnover of Tory cabinet ministers this last few months, the bill to the taxpayer must have run into millions of pounds. There are several layers to my personal dissatisfaction with this. The first is that we've created a culture in which handouts for people who don't deserve them are the norm. Ironic given how the Tories like to blather on about benefit cheats when they are doing very nicely themselves, thank you. The second is that the system is broken and disproportionate, with arbitrary figures being used irrespective of the exit strategy. I wouldn't be given a quarter of my salary if I jacked my job in. Then there is the matter of personal conscience. Even if the system gives them the money, they should in the current crisis donate it to charity. And lastly, there is the matter of scrutiny and lack of accountability. These payments just aren't hitting the headlines. And they should. We're working our way through Christmas movies at the moment and we watched It's a Wonderful Life for the first time in about 40 years which I found shockingly hard-hitting and compelling in places. There are a couple of scenes that verge on the violent and are a far cry from the redemptive last 30 minutes when Clarence the Guardian Angel drops in and helps sort out everything in the snowy Hollywood backlot that Capra created for the movie. But the thing that really struck us was how good the water was in Bedford Falls. It has remarkable health-giving properties, as people seem to age very slowly in the quarter of a century that is the movie's timeline. Particularly Mr Gower in the drugstore, who looked younger at the end of the film than he did at the beginning. But you can forgive a movie anything when it takes on the establishment in the way this film does. Remarkably, it was watched by an FBI agent who said it had enough communist influences in it to merit investigation by the House Un-American Activities Commission, or HUAC. They presumably had bigger fish to fry, however, so Capra never got hauled up in front of them to explain himself. The US establishment still entertains us in a rather appalling way with its excesses in defence of the American way of life. This week, Donald Trump issued a series of digital trading cards with himself in various heroic poses and costumes, ranging from superhero to spaceman and racing driver to sheriff. If you look at one thing on the web this week, it has to be this exercise in ego run rampant. The issue of the cards was heavily trailed as a major announcement by Trump, making people wonder if he might actually have a policy to reveal. Instead, as one US commentator put it, Donald Trump's major announcement is that he's selling his own Pokemon cards. My major rant this week was going to be mainly about the appalling way we continue to treat people who come to this country in small boats, many of whom end up dying. But instead I want to talk about the next wave of idiocy in British politics to which the issue of small boats is related. But first, note the Orwellian language creep here. The right-wingers have got us talking about the boats, not the people. Take these three headlines from the last few weeks. 
Why small boats are a big problem for Britain, The Economist. Robert Jenrick warns small boat crisis to worsen. The Standard. And my favourite from the Oxford Scholar and Premier Tory boy Richard Elkins. There's nothing unchristian about stopping the small boats. The Telegraph. I had kind of hoped that recent by-election results and the astonishing unpopularity of this government in every poll might have heralded a return to sanity in British politics. I had hoped that the issue of Brexit and the xenophobic hatred towards foreigners that accompanies it had been kicked out of the debate. But no, apparently it is alive and kicking in the form of the Reform Party, which is even being discussed as the new home for the Freddy Krueger of British politics, Nigel Farage. Let's talk about reform and let's boil this down to basics. It is actually quite simple. Reform is the new home for the frothing, angry, out-of-touch far-right. It is reported that 23% of Tories and 11% of Labour voters might abandon their parties to vote for it. It is one point behind the Liberal Democrats in the polls. And what is the guiding myth, the essential narrative of this born-again reactionary group? Astonishingly, they argue that Brexit wasn't wrong. It was just badly handled. The biggest threat to Britain is not the insanity of insularity and a refusal to move forward, but, you guessed it, all the familiar tropes of the right wing, including immigration. Listen to this from their homepage. The nation faces many challenges, but we can overcome them. To succeed, we need to do Brexit properly. We must grow our way out of the crisis. We cannot tax our way out of it. We must stand up for core democratic values, our civil liberties, our right to free speech. Let's celebrate our pride in being British, our amazing culture, our unbreakable communities, our incredible heritage. Let's stop all the woke nonsense that is holding us back. Let's have a proper immigration policy that works for our country and protects our borders. Together, let's make great things happen. These people are dangerous, reactionary and destructive. Watch carefully and be prepared to argue with them. I want to finish this week by picking out a theme from Reform's agenda that underpins their psychology and that is the reference to British culture and an implied sense of racial purity and superiority that continues to hark back to the long-dead British Empire. I have been fortunate to be party to many very interesting dinner party conversations recently and can report back on the interesting phenomenon of the Ancestry DNA test. I've been astonished at how many people have done this or are planning to do it, and in particular, I've been taken aback by the variety of people who've done it and the range of motives they have, not least sheer curiosity. So earlier this week, when one of my colleagues outlined that their ancestry test had thrown up half a dozen significantly different components, including Punjabi and German, I was absolutely fascinated. The point I'm making is that we're nearly all out of the melting pot and that British culture is about how we manage our diverse backgrounds and get the best out of who we are now, not where we came from way back then. 
My little cul-de-sac contains black British people, Greeks, Malawans, white British, Jewish and Belgians. I love it because of that diversity. And we all get on very well. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and, and in particular would love it if any interesting people want to join me in future editions to talk about the matters that matter to them. My contact details can be found on the Spotify Anchor website or via my blog www.blipphoto.com forward slash eye-catching.